Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this place. It's so cool here. Uh, Julie and I gave me a little text message just before I started preaching, and uh, it's 34 degrees in our house right now. So it's nice to be here for multiple reasons. Um, But what a blessing it is to worship alongside you. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles, if you have a cell phone or a handy-dandy Bible, and look for Romans chapter 6. While you're looking for that, for the sake of our guests, I'm not going to recap everything, but I want us just to take a look at what we've learned over the course of the last two weeks to bring things into focus. And ultimately, Paul wants to teach us the heart of the Christian gospel, to lay bare for us, to have a preliminary understanding and a holistic understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so two weeks ago in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, let me share with you that salvation is not something that you can earn. You can't buy it. You can't run your way through it. You can't climb up the the spiritual ladder and to gain your own golden ticket to heaven. You can't do it on your own. And then in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us, if you think that you have been saved on account of Christ's death, how much more now, dear Christian, can you understand your salvation is complete knowing that Jesus Christ lives for you? This is one of those four-dimensional truths that I think we probably don't spend enough time thinking about, and it's this, that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who died on the cross for us and rose again, sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. The same Spirit that made the universe lives in the hearts and the lives of Christians, And unfortunately for us, or fortunately for us, we have one of two choices to make. We can believe in the audacity of that claim, or we can say that Scripture is wrong. But you think about that for a moment. To say that the creator of the universe lives inside of you. But Paul, he comes to terms with an issue. He recognizes that any person who has a sin nature, that's all of us, has a unique danger, spiritually speaking, when it comes to preaching grace. And what is that? It is the temptation to treat grace as a license to sin, to keep on sinning. And so this this is the question that I want us to grapple with this morning. I put it this way. If Christians are saved by sheer grace, then why can't we just do whatever we want? It's a fair question, isn't it? And Paul, he kind of beats us to the punch. I think if he didn't frame the question this way, and we read through the entire first five chapters of Romans 1 through 5, we'd kind of get to that point and say, well, if Christ has paid for everything, why should I keep living an obedient life? In fact, if you do have your Bibles open, look at the two verses that come just before Romans 6. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. What does the law do? It serves as a mirror, and it shows you how you do not measure up to the standard of God. That's what it does. And so when we see it, we say, I have fallen short of God's glory. But, Paul says, where sin increased, grace increases all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That even though every single one of us have run away from God, he chases us down, he brings us back, he restores us to a right relationship with God, and he grants us an eternal inheritance with him. That's all the good news. That's where Romans 5 comes in and screams at us, reminding us, you can't out the cross. That's good news. But then again, right on the heels of that, Paul realizes, because of our sin nature, we might be tempted to abuse this grace. Here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. This is the question that we're going to be grappling with. If God is so gracious... Why can't I just keep on sinning? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We say there's grace, there's forgiveness, I got my golden ticket. Why does it really matter? In fact, when you look at my life, I'm, I'm far more like Jesus than I used to be. I'm not perfect. But do I really need to strive to obey in every element of my life when Christ has already paid for everything? Is it really that big of a deal? You know, Julie and I, one of the ways that we try to uh, instruct our kids and give them a solid foundation is uh, through teaching them catechism. And one app that I use is the New City Catechism. If you have uh, young kids, parents, I want to entrust that resource to you. It's free. It comes with commentary and questions and music. And my kids absolutely love it. But here's the question that I found myself thinking about this week. Question and answer 35 goes like this. Since we are redeemed by grace alone through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? See, it's asking the same question. It's highlighting to us, like I've shared with you already, there is a unique danger, spiritually speaking, to preaching grace to Christians or anyone who has a sin nature, that being all of us, because of our temptation in order to abuse it, to abuse the grace that God has given us. So then you might ask, okay, well, what is grace? I gave a definition in your note sheet. Take a look at that. Grace is God's unmerited favor. What does that mean? It means you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it on ourselves. It's God's unmerited favor, God's gift to you at the expense of Jesus. God's gift to you at the expense of Jesus giving us what we could never earn and what we do not deserve at the expense of Jesus' life. And the very first thing that we try to do, again, when when we hear this radical message, maybe the first time we hear it, we are overcome with gratitude. And it causes us to have a deep sense of humility on account of what Jesus has done. And yet, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long, long time, How many times have you heard the word grace, mercy, forgiveness, salvation? And maybe, just maybe, over time, if if we don't protect our hearts, it can be cheapened. And over that course of time, we lose respect for the grace that God has given us. 
And so Paul wants to outline why this cannot be. So look at your Bibles with me, the first four verses. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Circle, highlight, underline. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized also into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. So, Paul is talking directly to Christians for a moment, and uh, if you're someone who's just tuning in for the first time and you don't know what you think about Jesus, we are so glad that you are here. But I want you to listen in for a moment as I talk directly to Christians for a moment. Paul has a message that he wants to deliver exclusively to Christians. He says, for those of you who say, so now that I'm a Christian... It's okay for me to continue on in in that relationship that I shouldn't be in. To continue in bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment, even though God calls me to reconciliation. To become harsh and, and angry and afraid, even though God gives us hope. To keep clicking on that site, even though I know God doesn't want me to do it. Fill in the blank. When we, when we live out our lives, there are many temptations in our life, and we begin to ask ourselves this question. Is it all that bad? Do I really have to strive for full obedience? Can't I have my cake and eat it too? And Paul is calling us to turn away from the old life and to put on a new life. And the image that he gives us is baptism. And I think it's so incredible that we have already witnessed two baptisms this morning. What are the things that we learned about the water? What does the water represent? It is a sign and a seal of what Christ has done in our life. What has he done? We recognize that in the same way that Jesus Christ was buried, so too our sin has been buried. And it has been put to death. Our old life has been put to death. And we have been giving a new life so that we can flourish and grow and have communion with God and with one another. And so that's the the message, the motif, the metaphor that Paul wants us to focus on. The word that he uses here, the Greek word for new life, is metanoia. And you might find that familiar because in English we have a word that we use, metamorphosis. What is metamorphosis? Well, you think about that tiny little caterpillar that is groveling around on its belly, and then it goes into a cocoon, and there what happens? It is totally and completely transformed into a brand new thing, into a beautiful butterfly. And what's something that we've never seen before? Never have we seen a butterfly try to go back into that cocoon and say, you know what, I don't really like this transformation. I want to go back to groveling on my belly. And yet Paul, what he is saying is so many of you are doing exactly that thing in a spiritual sense. You used to be groveling on your belly. And yet God has given you something more. You've had a new life, a new identity, a new inheritance, a new eternity that you get to enjoy with him. All of these things have been given to you. And you have new joy on account of the transformation that you have received. And yet what is happening? You keep returning to the old life. 
You keep trying to pick it back up again. Let me give you a, another metaphor that might be helpful. Christ talks about the old you being dead, buried, done away with. Paul is saying it's kind of like you going back out in your backyard, going six feet under, digging out the old you, the old corpse, putting it over your shoulder, and lugging it around wherever you go. Paul says, you've already died to that. Leave it in the ground and see the new life that Christ is giving to you. And so to that question, if God is so gracious, why can't I just keep sinning? Let me show you the four answers that Paul outlines in our passage of Scripture this morning. The first one is this. Since we died to sin, we can't live in it any longer. That's verse 2. What does it say? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul says, for many of you, you're like that butterfly who wants to go back to his old life like the caterpillar and to grovel on its belly. Don't do it. Stop going back to the old life. See the new joy and the new life that Christ has already given to you. And maybe, just maybe, some of you here or some of you who are watching online have been following Jesus for quite some time and you've been asking yourself, I don't see the joy. I don't see the fruit of the Spirit. What are they? What are those nine fruit that have been outlined? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Where's the joy in my life? If I can be so bold for a moment, maybe, just maybe, this is the answer. Maybe, just maybe, you have resolved wholeheartedly in your heart of hearts to accept the death of Jesus, and yet you're still not serving a living Lord. Your Savior is still dead, and your life is still dead. We recognize that according to Scripture, Christ is alive again. He's living for you. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And there is a new joy, a new life that we get to live. And yet, for some of us, we keep going back to the old life. We ask ourselves, where's the joy that I was promised? Maybe, just maybe, this is the reason. That we keep going back to the old life. See, Paul says, listen, at the moment you step over the line to follow Jesus, you need to recognize that you were bought at the infinite price of Christ's death. And after three days, he made Easter. He overcame the grave. And everything that has been granted and credited to him has also been given to you. And because that's the case, we should resolve wholeheartedly to follow him in obedience and love in every area of our life. Every single element of our life. And so today, a lot of you perhaps are going to realize why your new life doesn't feel a whole lot different from the old life because you're like that caterpillar turned butterfly who continues to grovel on its belly. And so take a look at where Paul goes right after this in verse 5. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, he will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Why? Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So here's the second point that Paul wants to outline for us. We have been united with Christ, so remain in him. There's a story in John chapter 15 in which Jesus is telling his disciples that on account of following me, life is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be really hard, and you should expect heartache on account of following Jesus. And then right after that, he tells them that it is better for me to leave you. And all the disciples are shocked and perplexed. Can you imagine sitting there with Jesus? He says, it's good for me to leave. Are you kidding me? No way. Crowds flock to you. You're the great miracle worker. You preach with power and authority. Everyone comes to you. The gospel movement is on the rise. And you want to leave? Why? And Jesus says, you don't understand. When I leave you, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you at all times. That no matter how high up a mountain you go or how low down a valley you enter, I will always be with you. And it requires me to leave in order for you to gain the Holy Spirit so that I can be with you always. See, this is a good thing. And what Paul is reminding us of is when we walk the Christian life, the Holy Spirit never leaves you. The Holy Spirit is always guiding you. And then he goes on to say this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then I will produce good fruit in you. And in the course of seven verses, 11 times he says, remain in me. Or other translations say, abide in me. He says, abide, 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 abide. It's like there's a message He wants us to recognize that he will always remain in us if we choose to remain in him. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Verse 5, look at it again. If you've been united with him in his death, how much more shall we be united with him in his resurrection? But here's what we have to see. Every single time we choose to pick up the old life, We click on that website that we know that we shouldn't. We choose to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment when God calls us to reconciliation. We choose to enter into our old life even though we know that Christ calls us to flee from that and to choose to obediently walk with him. Every single time we do that, when we unplug from what this book says and we say, you know what, I think I'm a little bit smarter than this book, then what we're doing is we're unplugging from Jesus. We're choosing to unplug from the Holy Spirit and a life in Christ. Every single time we act like we are smarter than Scripture, that is precisely what happens. And then we get to his third point, which starts at verse 8. Take a look at this with me. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. What good news. And the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, if that ended just right there, Perhaps we'd be excited about it, but we might ask ourselves, what does that mean for me? 
Paul continues, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's the third point I want you to to take note of. Your old life was put to death so that you could have a new life. Christ defeated the power of sin and death on the cross. It no longer has mastery over you. However, we also know that sin is alive and well in the world today, is it not? You can go out into the world, you can take a look on social media, it doesn't take long, and you will begin to see the painful effects of sin and death. So how are we to approach the topic of sin, knowing that in one sense Christ has defeated it, but in another sense we're living in it? Not just talking about stuff that's out there, but in here, in our own hearts. It's alive and well. So, so how, how do we think about this? Perhaps uh, an image or a metaphor might be helpful. You, you might think about um, a nation that was laid siege to uh, a guerrilla warfare. They come in, they take over the nation, and they are wreaking havoc in the entire nation. And then let's just say a good army comes in and they overthrow the wicked scheme and they send them out and they give the government back to the people and all is well except that guerrilla warfare group can still try to wreak havoc even though they will never be able to again regain total control from the fringes they still try to wreak havoc. Their desire is simply to watch the world burn. And to make sure that it goes poorly. In a spiritual sense, that's our sin nature. We know that absolutely nothing can take us out of the palm of God's hand. And yet, at exactly the same time, we struggle with sin. We struggle with that desire to continue to pick up the old life. To flee from God and to choose the caterpillar life over and over again. And so, here's what we see. Your sin nature, it can influence you. It can wreak havoc in your life. It can cause you to stumble. But never again can it take total control over your life because of the power of Jesus. You know, an image that came to mind for me as I was thinking about this this past week was uh, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, If you're a member here, you know I like C.S. Lewis. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. And I want to read to you a portion of this book. What is perhaps one of my favorite stories. And it's the moment in which this young boy has scales all over his body and especially on his arm, and it is destroying him. It's killing him. And he has tried multiple times to peel it off, but he's never been able to successfully take it off so that he could become a boy again. And then Aslan, the lion, says, let me undress you. Here's what happens. The lion said, but I don't know if it spoke You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling stuff peel off, you know? If you've ever picked a scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's such fun to see the stuff coming off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. 
just as I thought I'd done it myself three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the other times I had tried. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Let me ask you a question. Who here, by a show of hands, is no longer a work in progress? Are there any uh, grace graduates in this room today? Anyone came in here totally and completely clean? Probably not. We are all works in progress. We're all struggling with sin. We're all struggling to fight against the old self and to put on the new self that is being renewed day by day to walk in Jesus. What does Jesus tell us? He tells us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and to follow him in obedience. It's a daily choice whether or not I'm going to live into the new life that Christ has given me or if I'm going to go back out into the backyard and dig out the old Justin. What decision am I going to make? And I need to make that choice every single day. Think again of that caterpillar, the metanoia, the metamorphosis. You were dead, right? You were buried. That's that caterpillar in the cocoon, the old life. But now you are given a brand new life, a new identity, a new hope. All those things have been given to you. But here's the thing. Even though we punched the ticket, even though we're on the inside, even though we've been transformed, for many of us, it hasn't brought about true transformation because we're not daily living into that life of walking with Jesus. And that's where Paul wants us to change. Paul wants us to choose to follow him, not just to admire him. Do you see the difference? Not just to look admiringly at Jesus at the cross and say, wow, look at everything he did for me. Thank you, Jesus, and then to go on our way. But to to, to recognize that after he overcame Easter, overcome the grave, he says, follow me. Come with me, Justin. I have a plan for your life that will bring about true joy and true transformation. And Paul says, if I have this perspective that says, I'm just going to continue to live in sin so that grace may abound, you're like a person who's hanging on to a dead Christ, living as a dead you, forgetting all the while that you serve a risen Christ who wants to work in a new and living you. That's the difference. For so many of us, Christ is not alive in our life. He's just someone who did remarkable things long, long ago. And that's why I said earlier, perhaps that's the reason why for some of us there's no joy. And we're wondering if we signed up for the right thing. And Jesus is stretching out his hand saying, come with me. See the joy that only I can bring. 
And if I can just talk to the youth for a moment, I, I know for myself when I was growing up and learning more about this book, learning the law, I often found myself thinking, man, there's a lot of rules. Lots of do this, don't do that. A lot of shall this, shall not that. And I often viewed it as that's how God separates the good from the bad. Whether or not they're compliant or obedient enough or not. And that's how the sheep and the goats are separated. And it wasn't until very later in my life did I realize that that couldn't be further from the truth. Do you see what the law does? The law serves as a mirror to help us understand the way in which God made us. And because he knows how we are made, he knows the way in which we function best. And so he says, the reason why I give you this book is so that you could have human flourishing. You can have transformation. You can have joy. And let me tell you, I haven't met anyone who has said the caterpillar life is better than the butterfly life. That's the life to live. And Jesus says, that's what I want to give to you. It's not arbitrary rules. It's a way in which to experience the life-giving transformation that comes with Jesus. And then, one more thing that Paul wants to outline, starting at verse 12. Take a look at this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under law, but under grace." And so here's something that we all need to understand. Recognize this is the fourth point, not the first, but it's still vital. The fourth point that he gives us is you are forgiven and free to live for God, not for yourself. And I shared this with you last week. It's not about you. And for those of us who struggle with narcissism and have a sin nature, that's all of us, this is tough. It's not about you. It's not about me. And this is the heart of the gospel that, that we often overlook. God does not accept you on the basis of your moral pedigree. Paul has been hammering that home for weeks. He accepts you on the basis of just one thing. I can summarize it in three words. I'm with Jesus. That's the basis. I'm with Christ. And to really drive this home, I found something absolutely incredible about what Paul had been talking about in this verse. Look with me, go all the way back to verse 2, and take note of the tense of all the verbs between verse 2 and verse 7. Let's just review a couple. Verse 2 says, you have died to sin. Do you see that? If you use your Bible as a live textbook, circle it, highlight it, underline it. Verse 3, you have been, underline, baptized into Christ, and you were, underline, baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried in baptism. We were raised from the dead. Verse 5, we have been united with him in death. Verse 7, we have died with Christ. Have you noticed something? All of them are in past tense. And I don't know about you, but when I look at Jesus, I know that he went to the cross, he died a sinner's death, 
He was placed in a tomb and buried, and then he overcame the grave, and he was resurrected, and he ascended with God. All those things are true of Jesus. Are they true of me? I didn't know that I had done all those things. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone in this room is alive, right? We've, we've never died. We haven't died yet. We're all here. And yet, Paul has the audacity to say all this is in past tense. Why? How? Well, here's the note that he wants us to see. Dear Christian, your judgment day was yesterday. Your judgment day was yesterday. Here's what it means. For the Christian, the verdict is already in. Why? Because Christ's life is my life. Everything that he has done has been credited to me, which means even though the the day of judgment is an actual day that we all have to experience in the future, we consider it past tense because Christ has already paid the price. Because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about everything that Christ has done for you and for me. That's the good news. I am loved, I am accepted, I am embraced by God, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. And what crushes me is in the face of such a radically clear message, there are millions of Christians all around the world who gather together over the weekend, they worship God, they sing his praises, they hear the word of God preached, and then they go home and they've still convinced themselves that they are not worthy of the acceptance of Jesus. Listen to me. That is a bold-faced lie. What we hear from Scripture, what Jesus says to you, is that I have already paved the way for you. Jesus says, I already knew what you were going to do before you did it, even before I came from heaven down to earth and endured the cross. I knew what I was buying. And I came anyway. And so the message Paul wants us to see is two sides of the same coin. In one sense, he says, don't use God's grace as a license to do whatever you want. Experience the transformation that comes with living with Christ. But on the other side, don't think you've got to earn it. Christ has already paid the way. He has already set you free. Live in that tension. Know that both of those things are absolutely true. And when you see God's grace for what it truly is, you can say, I am no longer trying to religiously prove something. I just want to walk with Jesus. He's done everything for me. And then we go back to that question. I know a lot of you here, maybe if you're a little bit more type A, I started with that question from New City Catechism, but I didn't give you the answer. You're like, what's the answer? Give me the answer. Well, let's look at the answer. Here's the question. Since we are redeemed by grace alone through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? The answer, yes, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. And so for those of you who are Christians, perhaps there will come a time in which 
you're sitting in a coffee shop with your unchurched or unbelieving friend, and his life is the caterpillar life. But he sees you as a butterfly, and he says, there's something different about you. And you say, yes, let me tell you about what has happened, the transformation that has occurred in my life, the joy that I've experienced. I died to the old self. I died to groveling on my belly. I went into the cocoon of a new life, and I was transformed by Jesus. And let me tell you about this Jesus so that you can experience the same transformation. See, the Apostle Paul wants us not only to know this good news, but he wants us to share it with others too. He wants this to be the greatest news the world has ever known. And so that's the desire of his heart. Dear Christian, walk with Jesus. Walking with a resurrected living Jesus is always by far superior than believing in a dead Christ. And I hope and I pray, my prayer for you this week has been that you can have the heart to see that. I want to end this morning with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, God has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land. You shall be so out of your element and long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin. Why? For you love God. Let me pray for you. Our gracious and merciful God, we thank you for the message of salvation. We thank you for your grace, the unmerited favor that you give to everyone who steps over the line to follow Jesus. But we recognize, Lord, that you haven't called us to simply admire you from a distance, but to follow you on the road as you lead us day by day. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the courage to follow. Even when the going gets tough, even when life bogs us down, that we would experience the immeasurable joy that comes with following you. And not only that, Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage of our conviction to share that with others. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.